Hi, I'm Nicole Jardim, a certified women's health coach, also known as The Period Fixer, and you are listening to another episode of my podcast, The Period Party, which is what happens when you get the world's leading women's health experts unscripted, uncensored, and on the air. Think of it as girl talk gone menstrual. On The Period Party, we talk candidly about all of those off-limits topics, periods, hormones, vaginas, fertility, miscarriage, postpartum, and so much more. Join me and my guests each episode for fun, fresh, and truthful conversation, and let us help you develop a deeper understanding of how your body works. Hey everyone, welcome to today's brand spanking new episode where we're diving into a condition called premature ovarian insufficiency. It's also known as primary ovarian insufficiency or premature ovarian failure. I know there are a lot of terms for this condition and we're going to talk about why that is. My guest is Dr. Mandy Leonhardt. She's a GP and the author of The Complete Guide to POI and Early Menopause. It's a great book, by the way. And she is just an incredible practitioner. By the end of the episode, we were literally like best friends. (laughs) Anyways, Mandy sheds light on what POI is, why it is so underdiagnosed, and the causes of this condition, one of which is partial hysterectomy, which I think will surprise many of you. We also explore why POI is hard to treat and whether its prevalence is increasing. Mandy's approach to women's health is based on providing the best evidence-based personally tailored advice about treatment options, and her expertise in this field makes this episode a must-listen for anyone interested in understanding more about POI. Hi, Mandy. Thank you so, so much for being here with me on the show. Hello, Nicole. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, right back at you. As I was saying before we started recording, I get so many questions about primary ovarian insufficiency, and I am so, so happy that you've written a book about this topic because it comes up almost on a weekly basis in my work. I mean, whether it's with clients or via my inbox or on social media, it's definitely a thing. And, you know, I think too, that women who are experiencing POI are really desperate, right? Because they've, in most cases, not gotten any answers about the causes or really any solutions. I imagine you have seen that many times. So maybe we can start by talking about what POI stands for and what it is, and maybe you can differentiate it from POF, which I know is its former name and maybe why the name has shifted. Yes, of course. It's a really good point. So we call this condition POI, this is short for premature ovarian insufficiency. And the old name was premature ovarian failure, POF. And I think as we are more contemplate or more thoughtful about what names we give to conditions that also affect your identity and your, who you are, have a condition that is called failure. So premature ovarian failure, it almost feels like, well, your body is failing you, but it's almost making you feel like you're a failure. So I think the term insufficiency is much more appropriate and much more less emotionally charged and it's a better term. So we now call a condition that where basically your ovaries are not working as well as they should. We call this premature ovarian insufficiency, POI. And this is now a worldwide term that the medical profession and patients themselves use. And it refers to girls and women under the age of 40. So it spans a very wide range of age groups pretty much from age 11 up to age 40. And it can happen at any time during that time in a woman's life or a girl's life from childhood. So an 11-year-old girl would still be a child. And it refers to the ovaries of the individual not working at all or working very, very minimally. So why is this important? Why do we need our ovaries to work properly? Well, there's been several important functions that our ovaries have. First of all, they carry our eggs, our fertility. They're responsible for our fertility. So we are born with a limited number of eggs in our ovaries. And later on, when we mature during puberty, we start our periods and then the eggs ovulate and then we are fertile. We could reproduce and have babies in theory. So some girls are born with ovaries that do not have any eggs and they are from the outset not working at all. So these very young girls, the 11 plus, they will never go through a normal puberty because the second point that the purpose of our ovaries is that they are not just responsible for our fertility, but also their hormone glands. 
And as you know, you've talked a lot in your previous podcast about period health, right? So periods are basically a result of our ovarian activity. Our ovaries make, in principle, three really, they do more than that, but that would be too complicated. But they make, in principle, three really important hormones, estrogen being the most important one, then progesterone and testosterone as well. And in girls, estrogen is the hormone that helps us to develop during puberty. So a surge in estrogen in girls starts the breast development and also growth and bone density. So it's a very, very important hormone to have, particularly during puberty. It also helps with emotional development and brain maturity. So it is very important that we have this hormone available to us during those really important formative years between 11 and 18 or 20. And going back to your question, why is it so important that we basically understand what it is and pick it up early? Because if we don't treat this at the right time, if we don't diagnose it earlier on, and we miss this time frame, which is very important for our development during our formative years, then you could end up with very much lasting damage. So this is the one group. And as you can see, it is very complex because it affects teenage girls, young girls during puberty. It affects the way we develop during puberty. But it can also happen when any time between, you know, 20 and 40. And then it will be slightly different and the diagnosis will be different. So the scenarios are that you either start off with ovaries that never worked properly and never developed properly and never functioned properly. And the second scenario might be that you had a fairly normal puberty, you developed normally, you had your period, they started off all normal. And then at any age, let's say between 18 and 40, something happens and your period stop. And that's the point, I think, and I guess you will ask a bit further about that. What, you know, this is when we need to be alert and need to educate women that it isn't normal for our periods when they have been regular to stop or be very, very infrequent. And I'm really passionate about creating awareness about periods being our vital sign, basically, because our periods are directly connected, basically directly telling us how well our ovaries are working as glands and how well they're making these essential hormones, testosterone, progesterone and estrogen. We're two peas in a pod. (laughs) I feel exactly the same way, obviously. And I'm on this bus till the wheels fall off, you know, talking to everyone about how critical your period is to your overall health or, you know, how critical it is to understand what your period is telling you about your overall health. And two things. I think the first thing is that I was actually really shocked to read that in your book that you said that there are just some preteen girls who just don't even get a period ever. And so this happens to them. And you obviously just described that or that, you know, this happens in the teenage years. I didn't realize that. And is that because of a treatment induced menopause, like cancer treatments, or can it just spontaneously happen for other reasons? Or is it a combination? Yeah, this is a really good question. And so often in the very young girls who do not have a normal puberty, so where their periods never start properly or they never have a period, the first period that we have is called menarche, and so they never have their first period. They often have a genetic trait that they carry that increases the likelihood of their ovaries not having developed properly during the embryo stage even. Some examples might be a Turner syndrome, where girls are born with only one X chromosome. We normally have two X chromosomes. They have only one in each cell or a different kind of chromosomal picture. So chromosomal abnormalities in your genetic traits that you carry, it just happens spontaneously, basically. And you don't know that it will happen. You are diagnosed later on when you realize that the child isn't reaching her milestones and it's not developing as it should. Then, of course, if you are unfortunate enough to have a cancer, gynecological cancer, for example, which do happen, they are very rare. But if you need any other cancer treatment during those formative years, during puberty, and you have chemotherapy or radiotherapy, these chemicals and the radiation can, of course, damage your reproductive organs. Although, having said that, doctors are now very, very aware of that, and they would try everything to protect the ovaries from the treatment. So there are ways that you can discuss with the doctor to protect that potentially, but it's not always possible. Then there are things like accidents. I had one girl that was kicked by a horse, (laughs) 
and she had internal bleeding and to save her life, they had to remove her ovaries. You know, things like this happen. It's no one's fault. Often, though, we just don't know. And some girls are just born with ovaries that are not functioning. And we just sometimes don't know. And the majority of cases, we will never find an explicit reason for as to why their ovaries aren't working. The other condition, which is genetic, is called fragile X. And again, this is a chromosomal abnormality that affects the sex chromosomes. And that is quite common. In women who start off with normal ovaries and a normal puberty, what we see in the late years, when, let's say, a 25-year-old woman, there are many different reasons why she, her ovaries may not function properly. And there's a large overlap of autoimmune conditions with POI. Now, this is a little bit of a chicken and egg situation because we aren't always sure, does the autoimmune condition cause the POI? Or is the POI a result of the lack of estrogen and trigger for the autoimmune condition? But we do know that there is a 40% overlap. So 40% of women with POI also have an autoimmune condition. So we are talking about Hashimoto's thyroid autoimmune problems, Addison's disease, where they have adrenal antibodies. So basically an autoimmune condition is a condition where your body targets its own tissue. So it makes cells that targets and destroys its own tissue and it can flare up and it can calm down. So it is a dynamic condition, but we can measure certain antibodies. And we do know that Hashimoto's diabetes type one, where you have antibodies against the pancreatic cells that make insulin, or we have antibodies against the adrenal glands or against the thyroid tissue. These are very much overlapping. And whether this is a causative effect, we don't know, but it's certainly autoimmune. And we also, there are antibodies against ovaries. We don't know why they happen, why they happen and when, but stress can be a factor that can really damage your ovaries as well. There are certain chemicals that may damage your ovaries outside of like cancer treatment, depending on where you live as well. But to be honest, the big problem is that in women's health, very little research is invested in women's health. And this is just a very upcoming subject that where the interest is only just starting. Over the years, we've always been aware that there are women who are infertile at a very young age, that they have menopause symptoms. But it took us years to even have an awareness of that they need treatment or what happens if they don't get treated and, you know, the risks that they have if we don't leave them untreated. And we need to invest more money in women's health research as well. And there are some very passionate people, in, particularly in the US, the, the world leaders in POI research are based in the US, I would say, but also the UK, I guess. And we are just now finding out more about the reasons, but it is very complicated. But unfortunately, I think in the older group, well, older, in the mid-range group between 20 and 40, we often co-diagnose other problems and conditions, but we cannot tell whether they are the reason for the POI. And often we do not actually find in the majority of women an actual reason. And that can be super frustrating because you want to find a reason, you want to treat this, and you think you can reverse it, but actually you can't in the majority of the case. You can treat it, but not reverse it. Right. If that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. It really does. And thank you for all of that. I feel like that was so comprehensive and very helpful for anyone who might be listening to this and might be experiencing this. And I wanted to go back just a little bit to what you were saying about your period stopping. I don't think you mentioned very irregular cycles, which we'll get into, but I feel like one of the bigger problems that we face in women's healthcare and to speak to the lack of research that you described and all of that is that all of these issues are perpetually normalized. And so when you have an irregular cycle, you're just put on the pill. I have had so many clients over the years who have had that happen and then they're diagnosed with POI. And, you know, I could see in the timeline from their health history when working with them that there was a problem from a long time ago and no one picked up on it or it was just dismissed or it was just sort of slapped with the pill as a Band-Aid and she was sent on her way. And so I think that that's a fundamental problem too. Have you found that to be the case as well in your work? It is. I have had women who I saw at a later stage, so they were diagnosed at age 15 and I saw them when they were 25 and they were left on a combined contraceptive pill, so on the birth control pill. And at the time when they were 20, that may have been the right thing for them. And you have to remember, so let's say you are 18 or 20 years old 
you don't have natural periods. You know, they don't happen. And you're given the choice between hormone replacement therapy and the birth control pill. And you look at both and you can't really make an informed decision because often doctors do not communicate the pros and cons of treatments always very well. And let's say you have a friend who is on the birth control pill and that's what's normal because that's what your peer group does. So what you might go for is the pill. And then the other thing that the pill might do is it gives you a monthly withdrawal bleed, which is an artificial bleed, which is not a natural period. However, what it does at that time, it might make you feel normal because you have a bleed, a period like all your friends have. And they are using tampons and they're talking about their periods and you get a period too. So it makes you feel a bit normal, right? And maybe at that very moment in those few years, it may be appropriate. But that particular patient I had seen had been left for 10 years unquestioned on the same pill. When I saw her, I asked her, now you're 25. How do you feel about being on the pill? And she said, actually, I am now much more aware that I am infertile. My ovaries would not bleed or cause a bleed without being on the pill. But actually, I realized that this monthly bleed reminds me of being infertile because it's not real, but I still have to put up with it. And she'd rather be on something that did not give her this withdrawal bleed every month, which is actually artificial. And that was even worse. She said, no one ever offered me another option because they always assumed that I wanted to have this bleed and I wanted to be on the pill. And she also said that actually she felt perpetually tired. She had no energy, no libido. Her hair was thin. This was really heartbreaking. She asked her what it was like as an 18-year-old when she was at uni. She said, well, I always felt I couldn't keep up mentally, cognitively. Everyone was developing very fast and they were maturing fast. They were interested in boys or sexual relationships. And she felt she was trapped in a child's body because she was not interested in that. She had no libido. She didn't know what that was. She had no energy. She had perpetual brain fog and her mood was flat. So she had no sense of enjoyment, you know, because the hormones in that particular pill she was on made her feel quite flat. That was her response. That does not apply to every woman, by the way, but Mm -hmm. in her case, because what she really needed was natural estrogen. She needed more estrogen and not synthetic low-dose ethanol estradiol. And this idea that she couldn't keep up because her brain wasn't actually maturing like all the other friends, what was happening to them, that was quite tragic. And so I discussed options with her and I said, well, you know, there is a no-bleed HRT and HRT is not just for old women. And she said, yeah, I wish I had thought about this more because at the time I really thought hormone replacement is just for old women. I didn't want to feel old. I wanted to be cool. And I thought the pill would be cool, like a rite of passage. And then the very big side effect, having been on that pill for 10 years, was that she had osteoporosis. She had developed osteoporosis because the synthetic estrogen was not having the same effect on her bone density than body identical estrogen would have had. So this is reversible to some extent. So we we changed the regime. And I It took her many years to realize that the idea of being on the pill was just fake (laughs) and wasn't actually doing anything for her health. It was just to be like everyone else. And we have to take that into consideration. And and for some girls, improbably, they experience a period. And sometimes we have to acknowledge that that is an option for them, even if it's not medically the best option, but it is an option. And it's all about giving them all the tools to make the right decision. I just want to say thank you so much for sharing her story because I can only imagine that, first of all, when you're in your early 20s thinking of hormone replacement therapy, 100%, you're thinking menopause. And I don't want to identify as someone who needs this because that means, what does that mean about me? So I could totally see how that would happen. In fact, when I was on the pill in my very early 20s, I was having really bad vaginal dryness and sex was really hurting. And I remember my gynecologist saying to me, well, I could just give you some estrogen. It's kind of like a hormone replacement therapy. And I distinctly remember having those same thoughts. I was like, I'm so young. I don't need this hormone. This doesn't feel right to me. And I totally rejected it. And eventually I came off the pill, but I really struggled on the pill and it's what started me down this path. So I 
I'm really happy you shared that. And there was something else you had mentioned too in your book to switch gears a little bit, or at least to come back to the causes. And that was that hysterectomy, removing just the uterus, not the uterus and the ovaries, although that would put you into premature menopause as well, but removing just the uterus can also be a cause of POI. Can we talk about that a little bit? Of course, yeah. So this is a really good point, but also to just for completion purposes, women who have their ovaries removed together with their womb, we would call that surgical menopause. So they would be class in the POI category. It doesn't quite make sense because let's say you've had cancer and you had to have your ovaries and you've removed. This is not premature variance insufficiency, but it is still classed under this category. But going back to women who have a hysterectomy, so there are various reasons as to why you would need a hysterectomy, you know, cancer, birth trauma, you know, hemorrhaging during deliveries. Sometimes it is necessary to have removed or your uterus removed. And we do know that ovaries in place, the ovaries remain intact and in situ, and they only have their uterus removed, but they have about a 50% increased risk of having an early menopause. And we don't quite know why that is, but we believe, or there is a theory that maybe the surgical trauma, the instrumentation, the interfering with blood supply, the scarring can damage ovaries to an extent that they will never go back to functioning fully. So we do have to take these women seriously. And this is a very dismissed group of women. So can you have to imagine they have ovaries. Yeah, you've got both ovaries left and right. You expect them to keep working away. (laughs) Let's say you're 35. You had to have a hysterectomy for whatever reason. You come out of surgery and then no one tells you that you could potentially have menopausal symptoms now or that your ovaries have been a shock because they've been prodded and they've been flushed, you know, with doing surgery and that they're scarring and that they're traumatized. And then let's say two months later, you develop hot flushes, but you're only 35 and you develop night sweats and you feel really tired. You cannot tell anymore by your flow or by your frequency of your periods, whether this is menopause or not, you just have these symptoms. And then you go to the doctor and you say, I've got hot flushes and I don't feel well. I feel really low and depressed and I'm achy. And then the doctor will say, well, I'm going to check your thyroid function, but you're too young to be menopause. You're only 35. But you see, if she had had her womb, then we can tell that our periods slow down or they stop. So that's why it is such a vital sign because when we have periods, a woman who has a 20-day cycle, that suggests that your ovaries are productive. They may not be efficient in the sense that they ovulate every month and it may not mean that you're necessarily fertile or that you can get pregnant, but it tells me that your ovaries make sufficient estrogen during the 28 days to build up enough lining so that you can shed your lining 28 days later. So that is a good sign. And in women who skip periods or don't have a period for four months or longer, who would normally have them, we have to investigate them. That's, by the way, the criteria, one of the diagnostic criteria, which we use to start to investigate girls and women. So just everyone out there, if there's just one takeaway message, if you're not on any hormonal birth control, or if you're not taking any medication that could affect your ovaries, and if you're not pregnant, of course, if you stop your periods for four months or longer, go and see your doctor. This is not normal. I would even say probably less than that. So three to four months, no periods, go and have that investigated. Probably in the majority of cases, I would say there are other reasons. It could be polycystic ovary syndrome. It could be functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. So women who under-eat, um, over-exercise and are very stressed. These are all reversible conditions, but that's good. You know, go and have it investigated. If it can be reversed, work on this and reverse it and, you know, pay attention to your health. But if no underlying cause is found or that, and you have blood tests that show that your ovaries are being stimulated, but not responding. And this blood test that we use is called FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. This is a diagnostic tool we use then this may be POI, and that needs a completely different treatment than, let's say, PCOS, which can also present with fewer or infrequent periods. But going back to the hysterectomy, this is a good point. So now you've lost your womb, you've lost your telltale sign, your way of telling your periods are there or not. And it is possible that in the course of the surgery, your ovaries have been damaged or stressed or it had a long-term impact on them. And now no one believes you because apparently you're too young. The message that we need to send out there, you can never be too young to be menopausal, right? 
Yeah. And they are women who are often dismissed. So it takes only five years of having undiagnosed early menopause or POI, so not having estrogen or very little estrogen to develop osteopenia or osteoporosis. So this is a reduction or a decline in your bone mineral density, and that can lead to an increased risk of fractures. That's why it is so absolutely vital. We do believe these women investigate them, and it costs very little money to check your estradiol. You know, it is not a, a test that is inaccessible or expensive. And women go to see their doctor after they had a hysterectomy, and they have symptoms that they didn't have before the surgery, have a right to be investigated, and we need to take them seriously. Thank you so much. I could not agree with you more. We are totally on the same page. And I, first of all, appreciate you sharing some of those telltale symptoms associated with POI. You know, I've had clients come to me over the years who experience very irregular cycles and some mood issues, night sweats, low sex drive, some of what you were talking about. And then there's others who are just not getting a period at all, but some of them do have symptoms, whereas others don't really have symptoms at all. And so I feel like it's really run the gamut in my experience. So I'm curious from you, if you wouldn't mind elaborating on some of the more common telltale symptoms that women who are listening can look out for. Yeah, I can do this. And I think it's important that we understand what does estrogen actually do? Estrogen is basically a steroid hormone that is predominantly pretty much only made in your ovaries. There are three types of estrogen and the most important one is 17 beta estradiol. Uh, or estradiol, it's called. Um, so when we talk about estrogen, we usually talk about estradiol. And we have estrogen receptors in every single cell of our body, every single cell, including blood cells in the bone, the brain. So estrogen is a hormone and also a neurotransmitter. So it is also present in the brain. We have plenty of estrogen receptors in the hypothalamus, which regulates our internal thermostat, so our temperature regulation. So when you have normal levels or you have a menstrual cycle, it is actually really astonishing that the brain plasticity changes during the menstrual cycle. So we increase the number of brain cells so during the cycle, and then it shrinks again. They've done daily blood tests and several brain scans during the course of one cycle, and they showed that the volume of the brain changed with the levels of hormones that were present in the blood. So it is a very, very important hormone because the brain basically stimulates our ovaries to make estrogen and the ovaries respond by making estrogen. And that estrogen is then taken up by our cells, by the receptors we have in our body, and it increases bone mineral density. So the result of not having estrogen is osteoporosis. It keeps our blood vessels elastic and flexible. So the result of not having estrogen is cardiovascular disease. Then it helps for our hair growth. It helps our hearing, our eyesight. It increases neuroconnections. So it makes your, your nerve connection, uh, your brain connections more efficient. It is also utilized to put long-term memory into short-term memory. So one of the long-term problems is, for example, dementia. We know that women who have untreated POI have a higher risk of dementia, brain shrinkage, and cognitive impairment. These are just the main things. And the symptoms in the short term, so these were long-term problems, but in the short term, it may affect our temperature regulations or hot flushes nights. But you know what? In these younger women, they don't always get that. This yeah. is very deceiving. So we always think, oh, you don't have hot flushes nights, but surely you can't be menopausal. No, it's actually just one symptom and not every woman gets it and not every woman gets it very, very severely. But lack of energy, severe fatigue, and we're calling that crushing fatigue. So they unusual fatigue. You know, a 25-year-old needs should be bouncing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. To be able to go out and have fun and come back and still have energy, right? So lack of energy is really big. Muscle aches and pains. So estrogen is an anabolic steroid that contributes to the making of new muscle fibers. So muscle wasting. So you feel weak. You can't lift anything. You feel really achy. It contributes to the production of collagen. You may have dry skin, itchy skin, dry mouth, vaginal dryness. So pain during intercourse is not normal in a young woman, Right. You should never, ever accept having painful intercourse. It's not a thing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You, know, you may not always, you know, depending on the partner or your experience, you may not always have 100% pleasure, but that's something you can work on, but you should never have pain. 
So that is one thing. And then urinary problems, so incontinence, because we've got plenty of estrogen receptors in the bladder area. So you may find that you have incontinence problems. Palpitations is very frequent, common. Hair thinning, so it affects your skin hair pretty much head to toe. And the symptoms can creep up on you. They may not be immediate. They may not be very severe. They may come overnight and they may creep up on you. And one of the very debilitating symptoms is also depression. So there is a higher risk of depression because estrogen interacts with serotonin in the brain. It increases serotonin levels in the brain. Serotonin, as we know, is a happy hormone. It's another neurotransmitter. Then we have testosterone. You missed out on 50% of testosterone with NPOI. So testosterone enhances dopamine activity in the brain. So libido, sex drive may be lost and non-existent. And it literally will, to some extent, affect the person on every level from head to toe. But the tricky bit is that every single person will have a different combination of symptoms. So if someone has symptoms, another person will have other symptoms. And that's why it is really difficult. And that's why the journey to diagnosis is quite long. If Unless the doctor asks that really important question, when was your last period? And this should be a question that should be asked during every health check. It's really simple because you could get investigated until the cows come home. You could spend a fortune on having tests that will never get to the bottom of it unless you do look at these sex hormones and periods as well. Yeah. I mean, it should be asked, but also investigated because I feel like I hear this all the time, right? Oh yeah. I'm asked when my last period was, but nobody seems to think that's a problem type of thing. So yeah, again, it comes back to what we've been talking about, right? Is that the sort of perpetual normalization of menstrual cycle related problems and that being the fundamental issue, like you said, to getting a diagnosis really across the board, whether it's endometriosis or adenomyosis or POI or really any condition at PCOS, it's years for so many people I talk to. It's unbelievable. So You mentioned FSH, and I would really love to touch on that if that's okay with you. Just touching on how do we diagnose this condition? What are the blood tests that we're doing, or what is the testing that's typically done from your perspective to get a diagnosis of POI? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. So there are basically, so you've got three very like possible conditions that you need to tell apart when, let's say, you skipped your periods for four months. Of course, you need to exclude pregnancy. That would be foolish to miss that. (laughs) (laughs) You do a pregnancy test, it's negative. And provided that you did have periods before and you track them, and this is another, before I go into this big point, another takeaway message, track your cycle, write it down, use an app, whatever suits you, track it. Anyways, let's say you've tracked it and you've skipped it for four months, you full well know you're not pregnant then you go and see a doctor. And in an ideal world, you would have a blood test now that would look at FSH, which is follicle stimulating hormone. This is made in the brain and it is a hormone that stimulates ovaries to make estrogen. It is a really important hormone that directs and controls the menstrual cycle. Now, this would be expected to be very high in POI. This means your brain is asking, but the ovaries aren't responding. But to differentiate PUI from, let's say, PCOS and functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, FSH would be normal in these two other groups. So that's a big differentiator and it's a very useful hormone. And one isn't enough. You have to have two raised levels about four to six weeks apart. And that way you can tell whether it is likely PUI or whether it is not PUI. In polycystic ovary syndrome or in functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, FSH tends to be normal. They may have low estrogen levels, but their condition is reversible and it is to do with stress or under eating and they address these problems, then their periods should come back. There's nothing essentially wrong with their ovaries. It is just that their body is extremely stressed for whatever reason. Whereas with POI, there is a problem with the ovaries. So the brain is doing the right thing, is asking. You can measure this level of how much it asks And when it's very high, that indicates that the feedback isn't working. So the ovaries aren't responding and the feedback isn't working. The next hormone you would check is estradiol. You would check how much sex hormones have they got and is it low? And it is typically low. I personally always check testosterone as well and sex hormone binding globulin, which both can be an important indicator. So in POI, testosterone is low because ovaries make half of our testosterone. And when they're not working, we have a less testosterone 
it can be normal, but it's usually low. Whereas in PCOS, testosterone tends to be high or above normal. So that's another indicator. Then I would always do thyroid function as well as a matter of course, and you can check other things. You can run some general tests like a full blood count. You can look for antibodies. There's some easy tests. You can check thyroid antibodies, but that is still not a diagnostic tool. This is just to check your general health and look for reasons. But if you've had two raised FSH levels about four to six weeks apart, amenorrhea and symptoms of estrogen deficiency and low levels of estrogen, then the like, then this is POI. The next step then would be you would do an ultrasound scan. It's non-invasive, it's not painful. And you would look at the follicle count. You would look at are there any visible gags? And what the majority of cases we might see is very small ovaries with no follicles. And that is another diagnostic tool. On its own, it's not enough. But we would then look at the ovaries and see what's the structure, what do they look like? And then if it is confirmed, the next big, big important test would be a bone densities test. And that is often missed, bone mineral density. No one often remembers that they could have had POI for a while, insufficient estrogen, and their bone mineral density could be already low, age 25. So they have the first fracture in, in four years later. Oh. And that's why we need a baseline bone mineral density scan to monitor that the treatment that we now start, hopefully, is effective. And that's the whole point of it, because it is, to some extent, reversible with lifestyle too, very important. And this is another very important part. Once you've diagnosed POI, you offer treatment, but it is really crucial that the lifestyle advice is part of the consultation. First of all, thank you for that. I think it's so helpful to be able to differentiate between the different conditions, because there's a lot of misdiagnosis happening as well from what I hear and what I see. And uh, that is hugely problematic. So I feel like that layout was amazing. And so with regard to the treatment options or the next steps, what typically would happen? Because of course, as you said, right, if there's autoimmune disease involved, there's so much we can do to support Mm -hmm. our health in situations like that. So I imagine it all ties in together. Yes, of course, because So POI causes inflammation. Estrogen is an anti-inflammatory, right? Um, A lot of women who have inflammatory conditions, skin conditions like psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's or whatever inflammatory condition, the only time they have a break from their inflammatory conditions often is during pregnancy. And what happens during pregnancy? Progesterone and estrogen are both really high and they're stable. So they're high and stable. So during those maybe seven to nine months during pregnancy, they have loads of sex hormones and inflammatory conditions goes into remission. So this is the importance of these sex hormones, right? So POI, not having estrogen and progesterone is basically results in very dramatic inflammation in the tissue. And the treatment is really to replace the hormone that the ovaries no longer make. Very similar to diabetes. You know, we would not let someone with diabetes type one just die and not give them insulin we accept, okay, it's not your fault. You've got a gland that doesn't work. It's, you know, missing out on this really important hormone insulin. Now, you know, there you go, have some insulin, your glucose, and off you go. Live your life to the fullest. And then we should see POI in a similar way. You know, we've replaced the hormones they no longer make. If they have a wound, if they haven't had a hysterectomy, then they would have to take both progesterone and estrogen. Personally, I believe that HRT is the best treatment, provided they are on a contraindication. So there are certain types of cancers that prohibit the use of HRT, sadly. But this is another story. But let's say they have been diagnosed and they can take hormone replacement therapy, or in the US it's called menopausal hormone therapy. Then you would nowadays use body identical hormones. So same with insulin. We no longer use pigs derived, pork derived insulin. We have ways of genetically making human identical insulin. And the same with our hormones. We can give what we call in the UK body identical hormones in their licensed products. Or bioidentical for anyone here in the US. Yeah, bioidentical. Yeah, bioidentical. And in the UK and also in the US, I guess, you have licensed mass produced formulas that you can use. You have a little, usually a capsule that the progesterone is taken orally. And ideally the estrogen is used through the skin in the form of a gel that's applied daily, a patch that's applied twice a week or once a week. And then we also have a spray as well. If that doesn't work, so if the transdermal route doesn't work, 
and you don't absorb it, for example, or you don't achieve the symptom control that you need or the levels in the bloodstream that you need to feel well, you can also take a tablet. There's essentially nothing wrong in a younger woman to have oral estrogen even though it does go through the liver, there's a very small blood clot risk associated with taking an, an estrogen tablet. But it's important to get the estrogen into the system. So I find there are a number of women who don't absorb it through the skin, sadly. However mm. much they try to use the preferred route through the skin, but they don't absorb it, then I'd rather they take a tablet than nothing or have very low levels and suffer. And the very last option are hormone implants. So there are some women who don't absorb or transdermal estrogen in the last preferred would, would be implants. So there are little pallets of estrogen and testosterone usually, and they are inserted into the upper layers of the fatty layer of the skin. And they typically release estrogen and testosterone slowly over three months. And you need regular blood tests to make sure that you're on the right level. And finding the right treatment is based on the symptoms you experience. So the side effects, too much estrogen cause, can cause bloating or breast tenderness. And too little estrogen can make you feel too tired and, you know, hot flushes, night sweats, lack of energy. And so it may take a while until you settle on your treatment, need to be monitored. The last thing I want to see is having been diagnosed and then the doctor giving the patient something and then off you go and then they never see her again. And she struggles with that and she can't get it right. And this is something I also see time and time again. They're just left on one treatment. They're not offered alternatives if they don't get on. They're just told, well, there you go. You get the gel, you get the tablet. And well, if it doesn't work, there's nothing else we can do. That's not right. Um, there's mm -hmm. loads we can do to even just practical things, you know, when they apply the gel, how they apply it. And this is time consuming and doctors need to know how these products work to optimize them. And I often see women where they're just small changes in the way they use these hormones um, makes a huge difference. And you have to remember nothing, nothing works as well as when our own body functions optimally. Nothing is as good as our own ovary when it works synchronized with our brain, right? So what we do when we replace these hormones, we're always one step behind. We apply something, then we wait for an effect. And by the time we try and correct the problem, the side effects have already set in, if that makes sense. So yeah. this is why often it isn't so straightforward to just put a woman on a patch and you find the right dose straight away. You have to sometimes start low, go up, titrate slowly, and then see her again and maybe add testosterone, which is often for them the missing link to give them more energy and libido and sexual function. So they need to be, in my view, more closely monitored and seen by healthcare professionals frequently. And that we need to take them seriously when something doesn't work and offer them options. Yeah, that was incredible. Thank you for that. And from a lifestyle perspective, is that something you offer as well too? Or do you recommend they work with somebody in addition to that? Of course. I mean, I see women and sadly, sometimes you reach a point when we know they need estrogen and we know they would benefit also from maybe natural progesterone, not only just for endometrial protection, um, there are some problems associated with HRT as well, because it isn't our own gland making the hormone, even though when we get it into the bloodstream, our body should not be able to tell the difference. But getting the same levels that our own ovaries know how to feel great is not quite the same. So there are many women who struggle to find the right dose where they feel they function optimally well. And then we have to look outside the medical treatment. When we've tried everything and every dose and we check the blood and we can't identify anything else that we can improve with regards to the medication, we encourage them to stay on some estrogen, you know, so that we prevent all the future problems, osteoporosis, heart disease and dementia and so on. But then we have to also look at the symptoms they still experience that they aren't improved by the, the hormone replacement therapy. And where can we look so we can look at life, so we can look at sleep? How can we help her to sleep better? Are there any supplements you can try? Magnesium can help. You know, could you have a bit of melatonin? Could you have a better sleep hygiene? I absolutely have to say that alcohol, even though I know they're young women and they want to go out and have a drink, alcohol is really the worst thing they can do. Although saying that, you know, if they want to go out for a drink, if they want to have a bit of fun and join in, of course, you can't 
control everything, every aspect of their life. But I do find that alcohol is a terrible endocrine disruptor. It's inflammatory. It can cause brain fog, low-grade depression. You is a depressant. So alcohol is really not your friend. As much as you can reduce or stop alcohol altogether, then this is the best investment you can do for your future health because it also contributes to osteoporosis, heart disease, and so on. So not drinking alcohol. Eating gut health is super important because there's actually something called estropolome. Estropolome are bacteria in our gut that interact with estrogen. And our liver is basically the organ that deactivates, filters estrogen through the blood, deactivates it. Then it gets flushed into the bowel with a bile tract. And we are meant to then get rid of it. You know, we go to the toilet and get rid of any estrogen we don't need. This is very clever, but there are bacteria in our gut that can reactivate estrogen, deactivated estrogen, and then that estrogen gets reabsorbed into the bloodstream. So you really lose control over the levels of estrogen when you apply estrogen, but at the same time, you reabsorb unwanted estrogen, and that can cause problems, that can cause bloating, it can cause unstable level. And we know that women who have very few plants, very few fiber, have a higher activity of the estropolome. So I would encourage not necessarily a purely plant-based diet because you would eating more plants and paying attention to fiber intake, green leaf vegetables, and also supporting the liver function by eating broccoli, broccoli sprouts, sulforaphane. I can never say the word. (laughs) (laughs) Basically eating shed loads of vegetables and lentils and peas and just to help your microbiome to be the best it can be to avoid recycling unwanted estrogen. That's another area. But again, every person is different. Culturally, we cook differently. We have different family traditions. So I wouldn't want to put you off. But I think the more plants you can eat, the variety you can introduce in your day-to-day life, the more important it is. The other thing with regards to nutrition is having a diet rich in calcium because you really need that calcium to maintain your bone mineral density. Um, So hummus, sesame, quinoa, paying attention to meet your calcium intake is important as well. And of course, not smoking. And the other really important thing for your bone and heart health is weight-bearing exercise and resistance training. So exercise, nutrition, and the very last thing I would say is to be surrounded by positive and supportive people who understand your condition and being able to relax properly and finding help and support and not just medical help, but help in a way that you feel less alone because it can be a very lonely existence when you're 25 years old, you're infertile. We haven't even talked about relationships and what it's like not knowing at the age of 15 that you will never have a biological child and things like that. So it is a very lonely place and it can affect your identity. So it is important that women are being supported you know, and have a supportive, that doesn't have to be family. Actually, family can be very destructive. I've heard stories where patients went to family gatherings, you know, and every single time an auntie was saying, oh, when will you have children? And, you know, and you think, well, how many times have I explained to you? I can't have them. And it is not nice that you bring that up now when I just want to have a bit of fun. Thank you very much. You know, but some people are just a little ignorant and This is something that is also, I find very important and difficult that you have to almost justify why are you not yet married? Why haven't you got your five children yet? And and this is really difficult, but that's why emotional support is super, super important. Yeah. Oh, I completely agree with that. I was thinking therapy or counseling or something Mm -hmm. like that to help you process all of that. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you quickly about it being reversible because the way you're describing it is that this is it. And, you know, there are some things you can do to support yourself, but I'm curious about someone reversing POI. Yeah, that's a really good question. Also, why don't we just call every ovarian dysfunction under the age of 45 early menopause? Why don't we call the 18-year-old? Why don't we label her early menopause? We don't do that. We call it POI in her age group. And the reason is that it's not quite definite. So what we can agree on is that ovaries do not work well enough to keep you well, to have a regular menstrual cycle, to make enough hormones to keep you well and to protect you from future health consequences. So this is the agreement, but it is not the same as early menopause. And 
we actually need to advise women that if they choose not to have a child, even though the risk of getting pregnant is very low, naturally pregnancy is only 5% chance, but they can get pregnant because occasionally they do ovulate. It isn't a definite condition in that sense. But I don't want to raise false hopes because it is not something that you can reverse to the full extent and to 100% functioning ovaries. So ovaries, basically, the function, depending on how women feel and what their health is like, can fluctuate dramatically. So if they are in a good place and if they have a number of follicles left that may still be active, they can, on some days, make their own estrogen, a little bit of their own estrogen. So they may notice breast and they may even start spotting or bleeding a little bit, which they haven't had for a while, despite being on a maybe no bleed HRT formula. So it is much more variable. We see many more fluctuations. And when they have a no stress, when they eat well, and when they feel supported and they sleep well, it may well be that temporarily their ovaries pick up a little bit and do produce some estrogen. But it is really difficult. I think what the message should be, it isn't your fault. And even if your lifestyle isn't completely optimal, do not feel like you are a failure when you cannot bring back your ovaries working properly. So this is a difficult situation. And I have seen one woman, and that was really strange, who was diagnosed with POI. She was 45 when I saw her. She had been on HRT. And then she decided to come off it for a bit because she couldn't get on. And then she started having periods again because she changed her job. She had a different partner. She was in a much better place. And she couldn't believe it. And then we took a blood. And whilst her estrogen levels were quite low, they were way better than anything that we'd seen before. So it's very unusual. It didn't last very long. You know, she only had that for six months and no longer functioned that well. But we do see that it is a much more dynamic journey with POI, where estrogen levels can fluctuate, both from the HRT treatment that you use, but also still from your own ovaries. And that we still have a discussion around contraception. If someone does not want to get pregnant, they still have to be offered contraception because it can happen, even though it's much more less likely. But fully reversing is very difficult, really. I would say it is not possible because there is essentially something very much wrong with the way the ovaries work. But let's put it that way. Sometimes they have good days and sometimes they have worse days. And on the good days, they may make a little bit of estrogen. But compared to a woman who has normal functioning ovaries, this is still not enough to make her feel well. And she still needs to use the treatment. But that's why... It is for them so hard to tell. Is it my treatment that has gone wrong or is it my treatment that has gone right? Or is it my ovaries that have had a bit of activity this month when they feel different? You know, this is so hard to tell sometimes and hard to manage because you never can predict how you feel the next day and any underlying conditions. So if you get ill, so for example, COVID, if you get a COVID infection or any serious infection on top of having POI, that can worsen any existing activity in your ovaries that you may still have had you know so it is a much more vulnerable position to be in but I would say no reversing is probably not possible because it would just create false hopes but I think you can support ovaries Mm -hmm. as much as possible and you can do all the right things to prevent long-term health consequences by doing the right things and it will pay off big time later on if you don't drink alcohol if you do weight bearing and resistance training and there's Nothing wrong with that. And you know what? But I live by the 80-20 rule. If you try and get it right 80% of the time, and if you aren't perfect 20% of the time, that's okay. You know, we all want to have a bit of fun. And sometimes fun involves being naughty, staying up late and doing things that we shouldn't do. But you know what? It does. (laughs) I agree. This is part of it. And you can't always be perfect. So just try to do your best. And remember, it's not your fault. You're not alone. You're not the only one. It's extremely common. You know, 12% of women between 40, 45 have early menopause. And we think, God, the numbers are staggering. There are some countries like India with high level of pollution, where in some areas where they have a lot of environmental pollution, which is another possible cause Um, They have levels of up to 20% of POI in the population in women. And this is shocking. So, you know, this is not a rare condition. This is common. And so I guess when you're referring to reversing, if you have POI caused by environmental toxins and you take the person out of that environment, 
it may well be that ovaries do recover to some extent, but it still right. may may have resulted in long-lasting damage. Okay. I mean, that's because that's what I'm thinking. I think of, you know, things like gut infections. Obviously, you mentioned autoimmune disease, which, you know, mm -hmm. it's very much related to what's going on with our gut and our GI tract in general. And I think about healing gut infections. I think about parasites, mold toxicity, which is a big environmental mm -hmm. pollutant, like you said, in India or places in India where there's significant environmental pollution because our ovaries are so susceptible to being affected by inflammation in the body that's created in a response to all of these things. So yeah, I could see what you're saying for sure. And I appreciate your perspective on this. I was just wondering if, yeah, I suppose if you start to address all of these things incrementally, if there could be a shift, but I mean, I guess there could be, <laughs> but like you said, it makes sense to taper your expectations around the potential well, results. There's also a difference between the genetic causes, which are not reversible. They right. are what they are. And yes. let's say a cause that may not have been identified, but that was when you were at 20, age 25, but up till then you had normal periods. And then possibly if you happen to address the underlying cause and support your ovaries and reduce inflammation, it may well be, you know, this is hard work. This is quite difficult for some to do. And we've mentioned this before, but not everyone has access to these fabulous people like yourself and, you know, who um, support women or passionate about this. And not everyone has the resources and access to these sort of tests they need and the treatments. And life can be hard and difficult, but Great. we can only do our best, I guess. And yeah. Um, no, I appreciate you saying that. I completely agree with you. And I recognize 100% that testing like SIBO testing and GI maps and all of these mm -hmm. things are hundreds and hundreds of dollars, at least in the US, and just obviously not even available to the majority of the world's mm -hmm. population. So for sure. And I think everything you shared was so helpful. Before we wrap up, this is the longest podcast I've done in so long, but <laughs> you are just such a wealth of amazing information. I'm so sorry. I know it's late for you. But real quick, I wanted to ask you about ovarian rejuvenation, like PRP, stem cell treatments, I feel are being used in fertility clinics mostly to quote unquote, reawaken the ovaries. And so I was wondering about that, if you have experience with these, because I hear something along the lines of that can help someone who has an ovulated ovulate again, or help to rejuvenate the ovaries type of thing. So I'm curious what your thoughts are before we go. Yeah, I will try and be quick. <laughs> no, it's okay. I have read studies about this at the moment. What I can say, it's experimental. Yeah. So we haven't got a treatment that is widely accessible. This is all currently still in a research setting, and it is not widely rolled out for the wider population. This is probably in a medical university research setting, only available to some women, and we don't yet have the numbers and the data to see what problems the side effects are. They even thought about younger women, healthy women, removing parts of the ovary, freezing it, and then reimplanting it when they're 50 so that they have a functioning ovarian tissue that keeps making their own estrogen. So yes, there are wow. loads of ethical discussions about this. There are loads of things, but um, yeah, as a bottom line at the moment, we are hoping that at some stage, a new future treatment that accesses the root, addresses the root cause directly in the ovary with stem cell implantations and injections and so on may really be helpful because as I said, nothing would ever be better than your own gland that works properly. But at the moment, it's all experimental and in research settings only. As far as I'm aware around the world, that's the case. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I know of a fertility clinic who's offering this, so I'm fascinated by it. Oh, they do on a commercial basis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Think. Oh, yes. Yeah. One close to me. I've had the founder on the podcast about a year ago, but yeah. So the PRP treatment for the ovaries and I know a few who've done it and they've said they've seen some results, but they had functioning ovaries before. So I feel like mm -hmm. it's so subjective and just depends on the person's situation. Completely. And you have to have some follicles. I mean, you have to have some functioning cells. So if you're born with ovaries that already have no follicles where everything's atrophied and then you cannot work with those cells, you cannot work with this. You have to have some remnants of activity in your ovary to stimulate that, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh, Maddie, thank you so much. I, I feel like you've just been talking straight for an hour and it's been incredible. I've laughed up everything and I'm so grateful for your time and your expertise. Can you just tell everyone who's listening about your book and where they can find more information about your work? 
Thank you. So my colleague, Dr. Hannah Short, who herself just, by the way, is in surgical menopause since her 30s, so she's written this book from her own perspective as well. We have written a book called The Complete Guide to POI and Early Menopause, and this book is available on online bookstores in the US and Canada and around the world. We have written this for our patients, and it is a summary of diagnosis, causes diagnosis, treatment options, and non-hormonal treatment options. So there's something for everyone. But we also addressed um, how to live child-free and lifestyle as well. So we try to be holistic and inclusive. And please give this book to someone if you know someone who has POI, because it's also useful if you are supporting a person with POI and you want to learn more about it. And I'm based in the UK. I have a clinic in Hampshire where I see young women and menopausal women at any age. And my website is hormoneequilibrium.co.uk. I don't do remote consultations at the moment. So unfortunately, I can only see you if you live in the UK. But if you don't, then get our book because that's why we've written it. (laughs) Yes, everyone just get it because it's so comprehensive. It's incredible and so well written. Thank you again so much for your time. This is amazing. Thank you, Nicole, for having me. (laughs) That's a wrap. Be sure to join me for more Girl Talk Gone Menstrual in upcoming episodes and let me and my guests help you to get to know your period and your body better. In the meantime, if your hormones are screaming for more, check out my previous period party episodes. And of course, if you love what you hear, please take a moment to rate the podcast. And if you're looking for an even deeper dive into your hormone and period problems, go ahead and grab my book, Fix Your Period, by going to fixyourperiod.com. 